following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Welcome back to the Larger for Life podcast, everyone. It is good to have you back with us. It's great to be here on the episode today with my favorite co-hosts, not including Nick Bullock there, who's selling his Mercedes-Benz or his BMW, his his German vehicles before he moves back to the U.S. So today we have with us Sean Morris of Covenant Oak Ridge. We've got Matt Adams, Dylan, South Carolina, and Derek Bright, as always, from Aliceville, Alabama. Fellas, we had a great discussion. I thought it was great, and that's all that matters. I thought we had a great discussion on question 10 in the larger catechism, and I'm really excited today and excited for our listeners that we get to dip into question 11. How doth it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? Answer, the scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father, ascribing unto them such names, attributes, works, and worship as are proper to God only. Sean, you want to take a stab at this? How do we navigate this rich question and, and do it justice? So you lead the way. This is a wonderful question, and uh, I share your enthusiasm for today's hosts that are the Bishop of Stuttgart, or what some might call the German Shepherd, is absent from us today. And it might be for the better, but we're here, and we're going to continue on in our wonderful, edifying discussion of the Trinity. So in last week's episode, we were thinking more so about the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead, certainly not an exhaustive discussion by any stretch, but barely scratching the surface, touching the tip of the iceberg, thinking about uh, the personal properties of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And now here at question 11, it's asking about how, how it is we know that the God the Son and God the Holy Spirit are equal with God the Father. And so this might be something that we want to talk about, certainly setting the historical context. And I know that this discussion is going to lend itself to teasing out the implications in terms of uh, modern contemporary manifestations of theological error, and some might even say heresy, and how this speaks against those things. But there were classic examples of this as well, way back in church history, but even when the Westminster divines were penning these things. So in, in one sense, it's sort of comforting that this is no new problem that the church has faced, that there's been a gross misunderstanding about the equality of the members of the Godhead. Uh, it, in, a, in a weird sense, it's comforting that this is a perennial problem. And because it's been a perennial problem, something with which the church has always contended against, uh, the church has often and perennially supplied satisfying answers and uh, rejoinders against these errors. Um, but this is base level Christianity, once again, as we're thinking about the Trinity that this is who God is. And if we're going to worship God rightly, if we're going to live unto God rightly as his people, as his redeemed people, then we must understand who God is rightly. And he is irreducibly triune. And the temptation has been throughout church history to assign a kind of ranking amongst the members of the Trinity, which in one at one level we can sympathize with because that's often how human 
societies organize themselves. You know, you live in a, a monarchy, you've got the king or the queen at the top, you've got the 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 landed gentry in between, you've got the noblemen and the, the dukes and the barons and the lords and so on and so forth, and the earls, and then you have the the merchant class, and then you have the peasant class beyond that. There's there's a natural sort of hierarchical ranking that we assign to human members of society, but we would be wrong to try to superimpose or retroactively impose that back onto the Trinity, which is part of what we spoke about in our previous episode. And so even here, the Westminster Divines uh, are, are getting against that. They're trying to make sure that the readers and the receivers of the Catechism understand the co-equality of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as uh, members of the, the triune Godhead. You know, in the days of the Westminster Assembly, and you see this when you read a number of the systematic theologians from those days, uh, they were dealing with some Trinitarian heretics called the Socinians. Uh, so not not the, the assembly wasn't just taking old controversies from the days of Athanasius and bringing it up because it's just interesting church history that people need to know about. There was some of that, of course, but it was a contemporary issue. It was a it was a a problem in their midst where you had Socinian heretics doing uh, warping and and abusing the doctrine of the Trinity and leading people astray, and there was a gross misunderstanding of the Trinity. And so the Westminster Assembly was very keen to help uh, the Church uh, in England and eventually Scotland and, and elsewhere rightly understand the doctrine of the Trinity and make sure there wasn't this mistaken, uh, erroneous ranking of the higher uh, or hierarchical assignment of the members. Of the Trinity, so there's something by which just to kickstart our conversation. You know, one of the things that I I love about the the standards, um, and especially this question, is that it takes something that is beyond our human understanding. Right? Um, I mean, Sean just did a great job explaining that, even explaining uh, where uh, philosophical thinking. Uh, will lend uh, to or tend to uh, take you to heresy uh, when it comes to uh, the idea of the Trinity. And so the the divines very quickly establish where are we to go um, to understand how the Son and the Holy Ghost are equal with the Father uh, in their divinity. Um, And they clearly say the scriptures, right? The scriptures manifest that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God. Um, and it, re- it reminds me of a A.A. A. Hodge quote uh, that says that to understand the Trinity rightly, we can, we can only go as far as the scriptures allow us to go. Um, it's definitely set forth in our Bible. That's the language he uses. Definitely set forth in our Bible. And we can go no further. We can add no more or take away anything from what the Bible has established, what the scriptures establish uh, of God existing uh, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, you know, to avoid the heresies, we saw our uh, scholar Derek Bright do it last episode at the very beginning. He was humble. Uh, And so that's what A.A. Hodge says, that it takes a great humility amongst the Christian to uh, to observe and interpret the the self exhibition of the triune God in Scripture. Um, and so we, we cannot uh, rely on human reasoning, uh, philosophies of the age, uh, because that always uh, 
tends to lead us to uh, some sort of heresy. Remember, there's landmines in this conversation, right? And so scripture is the God, um, the lamp into our feet and the light into our path in the Christian life, but definitely in uh, our understanding. Uh, I say that a little bit in jest, but definitely in our understanding of the Trinity. Well, this is, goes back to a few episodes ago on, about our utter dependence on special revelation, doesn't it? In that, you know, Romans 1 teaches us that clearly creation testifies that there is a God, a cre- uh, there is a creator who created us, and we owe him worship. Natural reason, natural law, natural revelation can get us to that point, but I don't know that natural theology would get us to Trinity. It'll get us to God. It'll get us to deity, but it won't get us to Trinity. This is where we need God to speak. Uh, sorry, Immanuel Kant. We need the noumenal and the phenomenal to intersect. <laughs> we need the phenomenal uh, to the to uh, we need the the noumenal to break forth into the phenomenal. We need God to speak, and we need Him to reveal this truth that God is triune, and that He is that this triune God is the God who made earth and heaven, who sent forth His Son Jesus Christ to redeem us, and that He sent forth that other Comforter to come and be our Paraclete and Helper after Christ ascended back to the Father. We're not going to get that. Uh, by staring at gorgeous mountains and trees. This is where we need scripture, God's special revelation to tell us these things. I can't even understand why <laughs> Kant would say such a thing. <laughs> Derek, Derek, the eye roll that you just gave, I think that your eyes are going to be stuck in the back of your head after that one, and it makes me pretty happy, though you look scary. What I love about this question is, as you you guys are saying, the word very clearly evidences not only that there is a God, but that this God is triune and that Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally God. And we have scripture attributing divine names to each of the persons of the Trinity. So Acts 5 is one of the clearest ones that attest to the divinity of the Holy Spirit. Ananias and Sapphira, they lie. And so they're rebuked by Peter. He said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? And then we go down a little bit further. And he says, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have lied not unto men, but God. So the Holy Spirit is God. And one of my favorite texts in an apologetic conversation, especially with a Jehovah's Witness, uh, is to take them to John 12, 41. And how Jesus exegetes and interprets Isaiah chapter 6. We all know Isaiah chapter 6. He comes into the throne room and he sees one who is high and lifted up. And the train of his robe is filling this room, the temple. And he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He says, my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. And Jesus in John 12, 41 says, these things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So we've got a very clear reminder from John 12, 41, that what Isaiah saw was the glory of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And in that vision, Isaiah says that this one whom he beholds is the king the Lord of hosts, and that he's God. So we have the Son having divine titles. We have the Spirit being given a divine title, namely God. And so there's really no way around it. You have to either say that Scripture is wrong, 
or, and this is indefensible, mind you, that, well, they are gods. They're like a god, but just of lesser divine quality than the Father. Then we get into polytheism. So uh, we don't believe in monadism, where God is undifferentiated. We believe in three distinct persons, one undivided trinity, but we also don't believe in three gods, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the Spirit is God, the Son is God, and the Father is God, and they are all one in their essence. So I love how the larger catechism, I have the cloth-bound version, it just gives you these proof texts to walk through and to see that Scripture is weaving this needle. You know, it's weaving this thread throughout all of Scripture so that it's unmistakably clear that our God is is triune, and there's not this, I think you said, kind of like the pecking order. Mm -hmm. We believe in an order, a taxis. Mm -hmm. It's not taxis. Uh, Derek does have an accent, but not like that. So we do believe in an order of the Trinity, but not this pecking order that you would find after the manner of earthly relationships. It's not taxis, and nor is it Eric Metaxas, which is what I thought he said for a split second there a few episodes ago when my ears were not tuned in enough as they should have been. Um, we should unmute his mic eventually and give him the right to speak because we have been just trolling Derek and it's fun to watch him. Um, <laughs> I thought it was a little overkill. He threw the computer against the wall, uh, but should, should we unmute him and let yeah, him speak uh, his piece? That's right. You, you've seen that. You've seen that gif or that gif. I won't, I won't declare sides in that, that term pronunciation war, but you've seen that where the, the panda walks into the office and is slamming the computer around and shoving things off the desk and obliterating the office space. Well, that's kind of what Derek did just now off the, uh, although our listeners can't see it, obviously. I will take a side. Jif is peanut butter. Okay. And that's Agreed. all it will ever be. Agreed. Derek is refusing to speak. This is infuriating. <laughs> Goodness great. We're like 15 minutes in and he hasn't said a word yet. Derek, surely you have feelings about the scriptures manifesting the equality of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Give us something. Now it's just become a game. Oh, here it goes. <laughs> I'm in agreement. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, yeah, no, I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here. Yeah, so <clears throat> this is important to see that um, all of the attributes, works, and worship are proper to God only, but that they are uh, that the persons who are equal, uh, they receive uh, praise and worship um, for all uh, of their attributes or their perfections. And because we've already confessed that God is simple and undivided and without body parts or passions, you don't have attributes that the Holy Spirit has that the father does not also possess or vice versa or the son and Holy Spirit or, or any, any kind of order you want to place them in. Uh, they're all equal um, because it is the one being of God because it's the one being of God, because there's one being one um, agency, even if you will uh, in the works of God, then all three persons as, as was mentioned last episode um, the entire Godhead is at work in everything that is done by God. Um, there is no um, no action that the Father takes independent of the Son and the Spirit. 
And when you start to get into erroneous views of the Trinity, and I'm, I may upset some people here, but there are some theologians today who have said that the Father could have, and in some cases maybe did, act independently in the um, ordaining or planning of redemption so that he could have acted unilaterally without the son whatsoever that the father planned redemption that the father um, decided to send the son all of those things he could have done that because he is um, not only first in order but he is ranked higher and this is where the error of eternal subordination can come in. And I, and I'll be honest with you. I do believe that um, eternal relations of authority and submission, um, eternal functional subordination or eternal subordination of the sun. Um, typically they all mean the same thing though. There, there are some nuances to, to those positions I think is a gross error. I would argue that in most cases it's a heresy um, in most articulations of it. Because the view of the Father, he is not equal. He is greater than. In fact, one theologian has used the language that the Father is ontologically superior to the Son. Hmm. So the larger catechism here would not only reject that position, it would condemn that position outright and rightfully so because the Father is not ontologically superior to the Son and the Spirit. They are co-equal, co-eternal, um, and they receive all names, attributes, works, and worship. Yeah, and this is this is, and we should probably tease out maybe some more of this because it is a, a bit of a contemporary uh, brouhaha. But this misunderstanding, uh, whether it's purposefully or, or accidentally done, of the the godness of the members of the Trinity is, is again, no new problem uh, that the church has been facing. There's often been misunderstanding. That's why the church keeps rearticulating it uh, generation after generation after generation. I mean, we, we see it, ha it has to be affirmed in the Nicene Creed. We have to see it affirmed in the Athanasian Creed because there was constant misunderstanding about the roles uh, or even the, uh, maybe not the roles, but the the godness of the members of the, tr of the, of the Godhead, the persons of the Godhead. Um, I remember tell I, sh I shared that story a few episodes ago about my own childhood misunderstanding the Holy Spirit. So I, I won't share it again. But I, I just I suspect that even average Christians, even not sophisticated theologians who are who are making these speculative theological pronouncements, like Derek was just alluding to, I, I, I suspect that many other Christians, reformed or otherwise, were were are or were like me uh, as as a kid, where I just I didn't quite understand the Holy Spirit. I think that you know I knew. God the Father was God. I knew Jesus was God, and I mean, I have these distinct memories of me of myself praying as a kid. You know, out you know next to my my bedroom window, and I'd pray to God, and I'd close the prayer, and then the next night I'd say, "Now, Jesus, I want to pray to you because I've been praying to God the Father a lot lately. So now I want to pray to Jesus, and you know, make up for make, keep it close to equal, and you know, just you know, a seven year old's misunderstanding of these things. But I didn't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. I I, I think that my I think that my understanding of 
god, it, the triune god, was more akin to like Greek paganism in that, you know, when you think of the Greek gods, they're all called gods, but you think, you know, Zeus, he's the real god, right? And Hermes is his little messenger boy, his little errand boy who goes around taking messages to the different, and he's called a god, but he's not really as much of a god as Zeus. He's kind of a junior god. I think that my reckoning of the Holy Spirit was something like that of God, the Father is God, and Jesus, his son, is God, and Holy Spirit is He's kind of the little messenger boy, the little errand boy who does things for them and makes things happen. Well, the catechism here is so helpful, right alongside with historic, uh, biblical, and orthodox Christian teaching down through the centuries, that there is no less godness in the Holy Spirit than God the Father. That there is no less godness in God the Son, Jesus Christ, than there is in God the Father. All are rightly understood and called God. And you know, it, it's funny, I didn't do this on purpose. I was just in the, the Scots Confession yesterday, because I was working on a paper and looking through in the Scots Confession of 1560, it's something of a precursor confession to the Westminster uh, Confession in 1647. And we see even there that, that John Knox and the other Johns who co-wrote that confession were keen to help the people understand that, because it, in, in the Scots Confession, they go through uh, the various aspects of Christ's ministry. They talk about his death, passion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. And then they get to chapter or section 12 of the confession, and it's called Faith in the Holy Ghost. And you see what these authors are concerned about. They feel like they've they've made the case that God the Father is God and, and Jesus Christ, his son, is also God. But they want to have this, this section 12 in there, lest there be any misunderstanding that, this, that the Holy Ghost is also not God. And so they say there, um, our faith and assurance do not proceed from flesh and blood, that is to say, from natural powers within us, but are the inspiration of the Holy Ghost whom we confess to be God, equal with the Father and the Son. And it goes on uh, very, very nicely after that. But it, it just struck me that even, even in Knox's day, Calvin's day, and on here into the, the days of the of the Westminster Assembly, and of course, <laughs> centuries back in the days of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, there was often this misunderstanding. People didn't were not grasping correctly that Jesus is equally God and rightly called God, and so is the Holy Spirit. And so these authors of these creedal and confessional documents go out of their way to make that point, lest there be any misunderstanding of the equality of the divinity and the godness of all three members of the ever-blessed Trinity. I think you bring up a good point, Sean, because one of the things that um, is easier to defend or, or easier to explain or even easier to believe is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God, right? God in mm -hmm. the flesh, um, the God-man. Uh, and then for a lot of, uh, maybe even our listeners, it's, 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 harder to, it's harder to defend, explain, and even believe that the Holy Spirit, whose role is to to glorify the Son, right? Um, for the Spirit to also be proclaimed through the Scriptures that He is uh, that He is God. You know, if you think about Isaiah six, as as Stephen Spinnenweber uh, brought up just a just a few minutes ago, how it testifies that that Christ is God. It also testifies that the Holy Spirit is God. Um, in Acts uh, chapter uh, 28, the Apostle Paul uh, says, The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, 
but never understand, and you'll indeed see, but never perceive. It was, you know, this this glorious vision, right? Remember what Spin just said uh, about 10 minutes ago. It was this glorious vision of God sitting upon his throne, the commission of the prophet Isaiah. And Paul says that the God sitting upon the throne was the Holy Spirit. Um, mm. And so we have, you know, God the Father. And of, of course, our minds, when we see Isaiah 6, we are automatically thinking, well, that's God the Father. But, but Paul says... Not only was it God the Father, but it was God the Son. And not only was it the Father and Son, but it was also the Holy Ghost. Um, and so, you know, for the heresies all the way back in 325 with Arianism to now eternal subordination of the Son, uh, the solution is, and I'm going to sound like a, a, a beating drum here, the solution is to be biblically minded people to be scripturally mm -hmm. driven. Um, you know, I, I remember talking with Doug Kelly. I talked to him often, but I remember one of our earliest conversations name was drop. name drop. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> you know, I was, I was talking with Dr. Kelly about doctrine of the Holy spirit. Um, because he, he very gently told me early on and, and, in my Presbyterian journey uh, from Pentecostalism that I should not forget the Holy spirit, right? The, mm -hmm. the natural inclination is when you leave a error um, is to swing drastically to the other side. And so he was always yeah. trying to give me a healthy understanding of the Holy spirit. And so we were talking back and forth about the, 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 the work and the divinity of the Holy spirit. And I said, Dr. Kelly, I mean, you're saying these things, and yet there are people who will op openly and, and kind of full of hostility disagree with you, right? Internal subordination of the sun or, mm -hmm. or uh, something like that. And he goes, that's because they don't read their Bibles, you know. Um, <laughs> and, so, and so, I mean, it, he was saying it in jest, seriously, uh, but, but that's what the standards are saying, too, that we, we have to be a biblically driven people because a good Bible reader will, will understand that the Bible gives divine attributes, assigns divine attributes uh, to, to all three members of the Trinity, father, son, and spirit, you know, that's right. Uh, same in substance, equal in power and glory. That's right. And I know we've brought it up before, but it's worth bringing it up again because I think all of us would agree that we want the, Athanasian Creed to be more in the bloodstream of more Christians these days uh, because we we need it so badly. I mean, so if you if you look at your Anathan the Athanasian Creed, it, I mean, so it puts it right out there. Whoever desires to be saved should above all hold to the Catholic faith, and of course, it's Catholic lowercase C, meaning universal, the universal Christian faith. And anyone who does not keep it whole and unbroken will doubtless perish eternally. So it's saying you, if you want to be saved, you got to believe these things that we're about to that we're about to write down. And if you don't believe these things, then you're doomed. And so it says, now this is the Catholic faith. This is the universal Christian faith. And it doesn't start out with saying man is in his sin and he needed saving and redemption. It starts out with Trinity. This is the Catholic faith that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity. And then later on in that, that paragraph, but the divinity of the father, son, and Holy spirit, the divinity is one. Their glory is equal. Their majesty is 
It's co-eternal. Uh, there's a lyrical quality to that creed, which is just beautiful. It's worth getting into our DNA, uh, but it's also worth a little bit of fear and trembling because it's saying this is, again, Christianity 101, Trinity. God is Trinity. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. If you don't believe this, you're not an Orthodox Christian. Now, that's not to say there's not going to be some misunderstanding. This is a profound mystery. Our mortal minds surely cannot wrap around this thing in its entirety, but we must affirm it. We must embrace it. We must believe it. This is basic Christianity, uh, Trinitarianism. Yeah, and you you said, you know, the Athanasian Creed has a lyrical quality about it. You know, my jam is the Nicene Creed mm -hmm. because you have the Apostles' Creed. So I have a red Trinity hymnal. We have the Trinity Psalter hymnal at our church, which has the three forms of unity. It doesn't have, though, the Chalcedonian Creed, which is weird. I don't know why they excluded that one, but it has the Athanasian. But mm -hmm. I have the Nicene Creed here, and I think very clearly, remember, Nicaea 325, uh, it was the meeting of that council, not 1054. It was not the year of great schism, as uh, Sean reminded us on the last episode after he repented of his fallacious dating. Of I just I just gave you multiple choice dates. You know, I mean, who's to say? It's, everything's relative, right? These things may have happened in one year or the other. Who can tell, really? Can, can I just say how proud I am, though? Because, Sean, are you on the Theological Examining Committee for your presbytery? Yes, that's a recent appointment. Yes, sir. Okay. How hard would you have failed me if I got the year of Nicaea wrong? If I was like, ah, I was like four, fifteen, or something like that. Like, what would you have? Do what would you do? If I knew you well, I would tease you a good bit and have some fun at your expense before allowing you to clarify. And if okay. I didn't know you well, I would have said, "You sure about that date? You, is you want to think on that a little bit? Because if you're like me, your mouth gets ahead of your brain, and sometimes it misspeaks." My tang gets tongled sometimes. So, but yeah, Nicaea 325. And very clearly, this is a Trinitarian confession because it says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, that is, eternally begotten, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. God of God, light of light. Very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So the creed is going out of its way, saying, light of light, God of God, very God of very God. He is not God Jr. The Son is the divine Son, but he's not God Jr. with this sort of inferior and I'll call it a derivative divinity. And then even the Spirit. I love the way that the creed speaks of the Spirit. And we believe in the Holy Spirit the Lord and giver of life. That would be inappropriate to say of the spirit, were he not God, because God alone gives life. God alone is Lord. There is no other beside him. And so for the spirit in the same breath as the father and the son to be called the Lord and giver of life, who with the father and the son together is worshiped and glorified, that he receives worship that is appropriate for the one and only God, then he too must be God. So I love a goodie. Uh, I love goodies. Uh, I love a good <laughs> and hearty recitation of the Nicene Creed during corporate worship at Westminster. We rotate through the creeds each mm -hmm. month. So we do the Apostles' Creed the first week. We do the Nicene Creed the second week. We'll do Chalcedonian the third week. And then we'll alternate between Westminster or the three forms of unity 
for the fourth week, just because these creeds and confessions are so helpful. Yes. And, and if I may, that what you just said, just a brief com- it gives a brief commendation to that wonderful hymn of the incarnation, O Come All Ye Faithful, because it's basically the Nicene Creed set to music. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not created. You can sing the theology of the Nicene Creed through that wonderful hymn. So worth bearing in mind, you're, you're singing creedal theology with those wonderful lyrics. Dear an Advent season, you can sing that during Advent season. I, I'm a big believer in Lord's Day season. I get 52 <laughs> Lord's Days a year, sir. So that is my most Puritan flex of the episode so far. And with that, I digress. <laughs> no, I, this is good. I would also just add this to that. Um, this guards against um, what the Apostle Paul uh, warned it, warned of in Romans chapter one about elevating the uh, creation to the level of creator to worship beasts instead of God. And some would argue that, um, you know, take Jehovah's witnesses, for example, they're modern day Aryans, um, that the son was created, but he was, um, you know, he was the first, who was created and he's um, not God, but he's not, you know, but he's still higher than man. He's uh, uh, and all those things. Well, um, the problem with that is that you see even out of Jesus's own mouth to repeat myself from last episode, um, an acknowledgement that he had that glory in eternity past that is only reserved for God. And, um, this is important also for those who would want to elevate, elevate, um, and I'm, you know, I'm going to pick on our friends from other traditions here, but we need to be careful in how uh, not to elevate saints and um, Mary and other to any kind of level of worship. And I know that they would say there's distinctions in worship, distinctions in, um, you know, adoration versus true worship given only to God and all those things. I I know that is the case. Um, We don't want to venerate them to a higher standing than what the scripture would do. I mean, even Mary and her Magnificat, what does she say about the one who's in her womb? You know, she calls him her savior. And so we need to um, distance ourselves from placing any competitor to the triune God. He stands alone. He is the one uncreated. He is the one who is before all worlds, who is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the one who in Jesus Christ sustains the entire world. I mean, all of the cosmos, all of the universe, all of everything. um, When there was none of that here, there was still God. He is a being unlike any other. And so even in our own, even if you say, well, I don't venerate saints or anything, you still need to be cautious not to, admire a mere man, a mere mortal, 
um, more than he should be. And this should provoke humility in all of us. None of us should be too big for our britches and think that we're anything. Mm. Our boast should be in Christ. Why should our boast be in Christ? Because he's the only one who is worthy of any kind of praise. And if we are anything at all, we are only something because of Christ. We are only something because the triune God has taken creatures made from the dirt and breathed life into them. Mm-hmm. And so we need to be need to be humble and gracious toward each other and say, um, you know, look, brother, um, I love and appreciate your ministry. I love and appreciate what you do. Um, but your words are not infallible. And um, and I think there's a there's a right way to honor as even scripture would tell us right way to honor elders and, and those who teach and labor in that field. Um, but we want to, we, I just want to bring out that caution because I, I see, especially in a lot of young guys um, who just come into these truths. I see a lot mm-hmm. of young guys who love, um, you know, they, uh, they love these teachers, these well-known conference speakers. And listen, I, I've benefited from them greatly. I, I, you know, I think all of us here on this have, have know some of these conference speakers on some level and um, would consider some of them our friends. And, um, but even they would not want you to um, hang on every word they say. Right. And so let's just make sure that we keep God in a separate category of praise. I don't know. That was my little rant. Somebody's going to say, what the heck is that guy even talking about? No, no, no. It was, it was, it was apropos. I had a couple thoughts and then I want to hand it over to Matt because he's got an excellent passage that he wants to read to us. But you know, one of the things that Matt said just stuck with me of, cause I know he has backgrounds or has background in, in Pentecostalism. And, and so do I, before we came into reform theology. And there really is this tendency sometimes that we, we swing the opposite direction. And so we, we come from a, if we come from a tradition where there's an excess uh, on, onto the, say the role of the Holy spirit, for example, we, we run the risk. And I see this sometimes where guys swing into this almost reformed deism or reformed rationalism. And we have to be careful about that because we do very much believe in a living and active Holy spirit with a living and active ministry. And we believe in a supernatural God and that we inhabit a supernatural world and we have a supernatural faith. And so we don't want to, swing to the other side just to compensate for past errors and, and i should say overcompensate for past errors i, I was reminded that bb warfield once said of john calvin that he was the theologian the theologian of the holy spirit and so there we have great resources in the reformed tradition uh, for rightly understanding and appreciating the ministry of the holy spirit just for example in a, in a more biblical basis than perhaps some of our brothers and sisters from other churches or excuse me other traditions do when they take things to excess so we want to rightly understand the ministry of the father and the son in their in their godness you know we might have to do a, a whole separate episode one of these days on as we you know take the doctrine of the trinity and debunk all these old errors like modalism and arianism and socinianism and all these kinds of things but you know it it's worth it's just worth mentioning that jesus in his great commission as he's giving us that baptismal formulary he makes it clear doesn't he you shall baptize them in the name, singular, not names, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, God in three persons, three persons, 
one God. And that's just one verse amongst many that's worth bearing in mind. And I'll finally say this, that uh, I had a, a, a professor in seminary who encouraged us to be pedantically Trinitarian in our Lord's Day worship. Because there is such misunderstanding in the Christian church, reformed and otherwise. There's such misunderstanding about the godness of the Holy Spirit or the divinity of Christ. We want to be over-the-top, pedantically Trinitarian to help our people, to help God's people understand that we worship God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. So it's good for us to pray even pedantically to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Anything we can do to get it into our people's hearts, minds, and souls that all three members of the Trinity are equally and rightly God, and they deserve to be adored and worshipped. So I just wanted to make sure I got that in there before we had to wind down. But Matt had an excellent passage that he wanted to share with us as well. Yeah, and it actually uh, follows right along with what you just said, Sean, this idea of you know our worship being triune and even our prayer life being triune. Because while we were talking, I grabbed my, my Valley of Vision uh, little prayer book, and um, there's, a, there's a great... Uh, prayer, praying to our triune God and specifying the three persons. And so just wanted to read uh, two paragraphs of this lengthy prayer, uh, and then I'll turn it back over to you to close. But just listen how rich, theologically rich this is, uh, but also adoring and worshiping and celebrating the, the persons of the Trinity. It says, three in one, one in three, God of my salvation, Heavenly Father, Blessed Son, Eternal Spirit, I adore Thee as one being, one essence, one God and three distinct persons for bringing sinners to Thy knowledge and to Thy kingdom. O Father, Thou hast loved me and sent Jesus to redeem me. O Jesus, Thou hast loved me and assumed my nature, shed Thine own blood to wash away my sins, wrought righteousness to cover my unworthiness. O Holy Spirit, Thou hast loved me and entered my heart, implanted there eternal life, revealed to me the glories of Jesus, three persons and one God. I bless and praise Thee for love so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty, to save the lost and raise them to glory. That is fantastic. What a lovely passage. What a lovely doctrine uh, that we've been considering in this catechism question today. We've been thinking about question number 11 of the larger catechism. How doth it appear that the Son and the Holy Ghost are God equal with the Father? And we could go on for ages, I suspect, exploring these things. We won't, but we could. And we would commend to you, our listeners, any number of any number of systematic theologies. I mean, you think of the classics like Turretin, John Calvin, for heaven's sakes. Uh, 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 Petrus von Maastricht has been coming into, into print and republication and, and translation here in recent years. Uh, I, I can't remember if I said a Brockle already, but Turretin, uh, Bavink, even Burkhoff, all, all sorts of accessible ways where you can dig more deeply into robust Trinitarianism and getting our heads around this doctrine. All kinds of of the patristic fathers from Irenaeus, Irenaeus to Athanasius to Augustine, goodness sake. Uh, we might have to compile a, a list and put that out on the show notes at some point later on. But Doug Kelly. Don't forget Doug Kelly. Yes. His whole first volume of systematic theology was Trinitarian. That's absolutely yeah. right. I was just thinking of older sources. I wasn't even thinking of contemporary sources. Yeah, Derek. Yeah. Well, I was just going to give a plug. I mean, we could do this for every one of them. A Brockle is wonderful and devotional. 
I just bought Van Maastricht's uh, Volume 4 and have been reading his sections on Christology and the Incarnation. And, uh, man, lighting me up. So putting in a plug for Volume 4 there. Yeah, all sorts of wonderful resources for us to dig more deeply into robust Trinitarianism and understanding our God better and more rightly so that we might love him more more robustly, more appropriately, that we might worship him more rightly as well. So we hope this has been a useful conversation uh, for you all, our listeners, to tune in on. We hope that it's helped you to better understand our God in his triune godness and his divinity, who's worthy of all our adoration and praise. So we've been having a fun time looking through and studying through and talking through question number 11, and we look forward to having you join us again next time when we continue our discussions of the Westminster Larger Catechism and pick up with question number 12. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life.